Well, I too wish you a, a blessed new year. It's good to be with you in now 2018. Uh, I love how we uh, call our, our years A.D., the year of our Lord. And uh, every year I keep a journal, and uh, I always start the first day of the year. I, I put um, whatever day it is, January 1st, 2018, the year of our Lord. And uh, this may be, who knows? We don't know at any time our Lord Jesus returns, and uh, this may well be the year of our Lord. But until then, our task is to serve him and uh, to do many of the things that he has done for us, now we, we live in this world. Speaking of living in this world, we're going to turn our attention again after a focus on Advent to the book of Daniel. These latter chapters of the book of Daniel, chapters 7 and following, are a bunch of visions. I've been asked by several people, why in the world do you deal with this part of the Bible, because it's so weird? And uh, I guess my reason is because the Bible itself says all scripture is inspired by God. And I think all means all. Um, and it is useful. And every single part of God's word is useful. There's not any part that doesn't have some application that's extremely important for us. Now, there's no one really like Daniel in all the Bible, apart from maybe our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who showed us how to live in a very ungodly setting as a servant of God. He does it just beautifully. He's got one of the most tender hearts that you can imagine. And next week, by the way, we're going to turn to chapter 9, Lord willing. And I believe, apart from the prayer of our Lord Jesus in John 17, this is the greatest prayer ever prayed. You'll be stunned. Maybe you can read in advance. Now you see the heart of this man, Daniel, as he prays to God. One of the best prayers ever. That's what we're going to turn next week. But today, we're going to turn to chapter 8. And chapter 8 of Daniel is um, weird, let's just call it that, and see what God has to teach us from it. Um, I'm sure you're all probably familiar with the latter part of this quote from Lord Acton, but this is the first part. He says, I cannot accept your canon that we are to judge Pope and King unlike other men, with a favorable presumption that they do no wrong? If there is any presumption, it is the other way, against the holders of power. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And his next words, great men are almost always bad men. Now, that's not a real wonderful thing <laughs> to think about. But as we know, if you've ever studied history, and you don't even have to study history, just be alive. And if you're a human being, you know that our world is absolutely full of people, leaders, who have corruptly abused power. In fact, you could say the story of humanity is the story of leaders who corrupt, uh, corrupted by and misuse and abuse power. That's what human life is all about. Now, to some of these people who are really, really, really bad, we call them antichrists. Throughout all of time, there have been people who have been identified as being so utterly evil, so horribly corrupted by power, using power so abusively that we call them antichrists. And there are a bunch of them. Here are a few of them. <laughs> King Herod was considered an antichrist. Obviously, Hitler and Napoleon, and that's Nero. I don't, didn't mean Pope Francis in particular. 
but uh, popes throughout time have been considered uh, an antichrist. Some of them have. Um, Prince Charles, by doing um, biblical numerology, they have determined that his name is, uh, amounts to the number 666. So Prince Charles is the, is the Antichrist. And some have done the same thing and determined Barney is the Antichrist. And of course, Ayatollah Khomeini and Joseph Stalin, all of these people are people that have been considered Antichrist. Now, if you want the top contenders, Number one, the number one person throughout all of history that has been considered called the, the Antichrist is the Pope. Number two, this is interesting, Nikolai Carpathia. If you've read the Left Behind series, he's the Antichrist. And I've been told by several people that I look like him. So, <laughs> but I'm not. I'm, I'm. Nero is another one, is three. Number four is Hitler. Number five is a tie between Henry Kissinger and Mikhail Gorbachev. Six is Napoleon. And number seven is any number of American presidents. Well, all of these suggestions are obviously wrong. However, the Bible does very clearly speak in both Testaments about some world leader who will be the Antichrist. But that's not quite correct. Because our Lord Jesus Christ himself said, no, the truth of life in this planet is there are many Antichrists, small a, that one day there will be a Big A, Antichrist. In today's text, Daniel chapter 8, if you have a Bible, please turn there. This is one of the main texts in the Bible on the Antichrist. And that is going to be our focus today. He's going to highlight, Daniel, in his vision, um, two future empires of the world that he foresees that we now can look back on in history and see that his prophecy was un unbelievably accurate. But in one of those kingdoms, namely the kingdom of Greece, there will arise a leader who is going to have the characteristics of Antichrist, small a, and the Antichrist, big A. Won't be him, but he's going to be a type of that. And so that's what we'll look at today. Now, you might wonder, what's the value of this? Let me suggest three things for you. Number one, we hopefully will learn from this today as we see God's holy word identify what Antichrist looks like. That we will be more discerning as we try to figure out what Antichrist, those who are contrary to Christ, look like. It's very important for us to know that. Number two, hopefully, we'll examine our own hearts to see if some of the characteristics that are contrary to, to Christ actually are some of the characteristics that we exhibit. I hope not, but we might see ourselves there. And of course, obviously, we're going to see, in contrast to Antichrist, we'll see what Christ looks like. And of course, he is our example, our Savior, and our Lord. And by the way, this, Lord willing, will be a year in which First Baptist Church will find a new pastor. And some of the characteristics you see here are, are, are very, very important, particularly when we focus on Jesus. Because it's very important that we're not led astray because one of the, the main tasks of Satan, the Bible makes it crystal clear, is he is the master counterfeiter. And as you know, a counterfeit bill is not, they don't make counterfeit bills that are orange. Why? No one's that stupid. Counterfeit bills are green, like the ones in your wallet. 
a counterfeit is just slightly off. Um, and so that's what Satan does. He takes the truth and just twists it a few degrees. And so we must be very discerning because what we're looking for is true north. But Satan will twist it just a couple of degrees. And that's the great danger is we will not see the twists. And I think maybe this text of scripture will help us to identify them. So our topic is going to be people who have exercised power in incredibly corrupt ways. And I will introduce you to them today. It begins, the text of scripture begins with Daniel's vision. And here is how it starts. Now, by the way, as I've said several times, Daniel's one of the easiest books of the Bible to, to, to date because he gives the exact dates. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, that's around 551 B.C., I, Daniel, Daniel is about 70 years old at this time. I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that already appeared to me. And that is the vision that we saw several weeks ago in chapter 7. Now, the problem is that Daniel is not arranged in chronological order because what we're seeing today in vision, this vision in Daniel chapter 8, actually took place before the events of Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 is the handwriting on the wall. That's at the end of Belshazzar's reign. This is during the third year of his reign. So Daniel has a vision. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa. Susa was the winter palace of the Persian kings. It's the place where Esther later would reign as king, as queen rather. And it's the place where Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. This is the, the winter palace of the Persian kings, Susa, in the province of Elam. I, in my vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, that's what happened. Now, remember previously, the statue you see on the left, that is Nebuchadnezzar's vision from chapter 2, the gold head, the silver torso, the bronze, and, and, and the iron feet, legs and feet, and clay feet. And then, of course, in chapter 7, you've got... Uh, Daniel's vision, he sees these various beasts, like a lion and a bear and a leopard and a weird thing is the, the last one. And each of those very clearly identify the four great empires. The one in which Daniel is living now when he writes this vision is the first one, the Babylonian Empire. That's going to be overthrown and Daniel now is going to be elevated to the prime ministership of the second empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. Then he's going to die and he foresees in this particular vision the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire, those next two. So that's chapter 2 and chapter 7. But today we're going to get to chapter 8. He's going to talk, use animals again. The animals depict kingdoms. And in each of these, the animals are, depict the human kingdom, but there's always a conflict between the human kingdoms and the kingdom of God. And we're going to see it especially in chapter 8. And so let me just give you a little brief background. This is the Persian Empire, one of the greatest empires in the history of the world. Right in sort of the middle of the slide, you can see Susa there. Susa is about 300 miles to the east of Babylon. And that's where the vision of Daniel takes place. That's the vision that he has takes place close to Susa, not far from the Persian Gulf, in the present-day country of Iran. And so here's how it begins. Listen now as I read. This is verses 3 to 4. I looked up, 
And there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. He starts with a ram with two horns. And then into his vision enters a goat. Here's it. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. So now he's got like a unicorn goat of some kind that, that just kind of flies through the air with the greatest of ease. But now this goat is going to go into the ram. What a, this is what he said. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen beside, standing beside the canal and charged him at great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. So that's the next thing he sees. And now, this one goat who has just destroyed the ram has four horns coming out of its head. And here's what it says next. Out of one of them, that's one of the horns, came another horn, which started out small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heavens and it threw down some of the starry host to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Now it depicts this goat that once had one horn, the one horn was prematurely cut off, and four horns took it play, its place, and one of those horns grew and grew, and this horn it started to do things that were way beyond human capacity, things in the starry uh, realms having to do with the cosmic realm that we do not see, the spiritual realm, something that seems to be beyond human. And then his vision ends with these words, I go back, oops, go back one more here. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him. Holy ones, probably angels in his, um, his vision. How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. There it is. Nice vision, huh? That's what Daniel saw, and he wrote it down for us. Now, um, if, if, if I was the one receiving that vision, um, first of all, I probably would forget it. I don't even remember my dreams at all, but if I remembered it, I would go, what in the world is this? 
And if I was a person who believed in the living God, as Daniel certainly did, and hopefully we do, one of the things we do is say, oh God, what in the world does this mean? I, I don't have a clue. And that's what Daniel did. And so God in his mercy now is going to interpret Daniel's dream. So Daniel's not going to have to speculate on this one as he had by God's, at, at God's help previously. Now God is going to tell him exactly what this vision means. And here is what he said. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, we know who that is, the angel. Tell this man the meaning of the vision. So now God initiates the explanation of this vision to Daniel. Here it goes. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified. Which is, as we remember back at the, at the time we talked about the angelic appearances and during the Christmas story, when angels appear, people are typically scared to death. And so was Daniel. He was, he was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the end of time. Whew. Daniel probably thought, oh man, is this about to happen? He says, no, Daniel, this is not for now. This is for later. In fact, this is for the end of time. So what is it? While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Now, we don't know exactly when that is. Of course, we haven't reached it right now because we're still here. But he's going to, this is going to, he's going to talk about what will happen in the future. For Daniel, it's going to be events that are going to take place hundreds of years after his time, and for us, of course, thousands, and yet still to come. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Now, in Daniel's time, Media and Persia were two separate kingdoms that were not yet super powerful. He was under the power of the declining Babylonian kingdom under Belshazzar. But there were these two countries that were rising in power, separate empires that are going to combine and they're going to be a formidable force that will overthrow the Babylonian kingdom. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. Now during the Persian time, in two major battles, the Persians went far to, because their, their empire was, was, was expanding, they went far to the west and conquered the Greeks in two very important battles, in Marathon and Salamis. And the Greeks are ticked. They're ticked that this country far, far, far away, thousand miles or plus away, had come into their land and defeated them in two major battles. They are ticked. And so a, a leader rose up among the Greeks who says, we're going to get them back. 
And with an army of only 40,000 men, he started a campaign that eventually took over in a couple of years' time an empire of 1.5 million. 1.5 million square miles. That's how powerful and how fast he was. He's the shaggy goat, is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king, Alexander the Great. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Alexander had just, was just around 32 years of age. He, was, he had destroyed his liver with alcoholism. He had taken all kinds of women. He was a sickly man in many, many respects, and he died. He had two sons, both of whom after his death were murdered. But his kingdom now, having never mentioned a successor, was now divided by his four generals. And they are the four horns. Now all four of these generals are, though they have different parts of the world, Egypt and Greece and the Far East, they're all Greeks. And they're all ruling as Greeks. Even though they were ruled places like Israel and Syria and Egypt. They're Greeks. These are the four horns. So now they're going to have four kingdoms, but they won't have the same power that Alexander had. In the latter part of their reign, of these four Greek portions of Alexander's kingdom, when rebels have become completely wicked, there's some rebellion in these kingdoms, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. In other words, he will be empowered by something or someone outside of himself. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself spirit superior when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. So there's the meaning of his deceit. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, it is for, it, for it concerns the distant future. So now Daniel has this vision, and he has the interpretation of the vision, and what did he do? He got sick. So this is sickening. After he was in bed for some time, he got up, went about the king's business, but he was appalled by the vision, and it was beyond understanding. So there's the text. There's the, the chapter. Now, um, the question we have to ask ourselves is, why did God give this vision to Daniel, and yet... It, it, it would not, the main events about which he speaks wouldn't affect them for another 300 years. Why give it to them? Or why did God give this prophecy to us and we're now 2,500 years later? What's the value of this? Why? All scripture is profitable. What's the profit? Why did God give this to us? Well, it seems to me that one of the, the reasons is that so we will not be deceived so that we will be duly warned, so that we will be tuned into the corruption of power and the characteristics of people that do not follow 
our Lord Jesus Christ. I think all of those are true. These are the words. Um, what we're going to look at now are our characteristics of the Antichrist. Now, Antichrist needs to have both a capital A, the Antichrist, and a small a, Antichrists. Where do I get that from? I get it from Jesus. These are the words of Jesus when he is asked about what's going to happen in the future. This is what he said. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. Jesus knows that we are prime candidates for deception. If the very people going to heaven who know Jesus Christ are so susceptible to deception, we are too. Jesus, I told you in advance, take me seriously. Look, you are so susceptible to being deceived. Here are the characteristics that you find in the book of Daniel about the Antichrist and Antichrists. The first is inauspicious roots. Now let me ask you a question. Um, what, uh, how do I put this? Um, it's football season right now, and we're in the playoffs, and uh, it's possible that uh, New England Patriots are going to get to the final game again. Now, if the New England Patriots get to the final game, and you're not for New from New England, who do you root for? Who do you root for? Anyone against the New England Patriots. Now my question is, why? Why would you root for anyone? who's not the New England Patriots. Why? Why they win all the time? There is something in the human spirit, deeply, deeply in the human spirit, that we love underdogs. We love rags-to-riches stories. We loathe people born with a silver spoon in their mouths. There is a deep-seated bias in the human spirit for the underdog. Now, that is nice. Unless, and this happens all the time, unless that emotional bias causes you to lose your objectivity. And God knows, and Satan knows extremely well, that frequently human beings are going to be led astray, not by somebody who has a silver spoon, because immediately you, you hold them at a distance, but someone that came out of nowhere, nothing, yeah, yeah, let's listen to him. You see, the Antichrist and Antichrists, almost all of them, by the way, have inauspicious roots. Here's what the Bible says. This is chapter 7. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. So it, it, it starts little. Here's chapter 8. Out of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land, which would be toward Israel. Did you recognize that person? I don't think so. His father was a cobbler. As a, uh, as a child, he was plagued with numerous health issues. He was born with uh, webbed toes. 
He, um, his face was permanently scarred by smallpox at the age of seven. At the age of 12, he injured his left arm in an accident involving a horse-drawn carriage, rendering his left arm shorter and stiffer than his right arm. His father slid into alcoholism and was abusive to the family, causing them to be poverty-stricken. When he was 16, he received a scholarship to go to a seminary, which he went to, though he was expelled for missing his final exams, and he was unable to pay the tuition fees. He worked as a part-time clerk in a meteorological office, and he stood five feet four inches tall. His name? Joseph Stalin. That's Stalin as a young man. Oh, there are not many people that have quite as inauspicious roots as that. But here is a person who was a very, very poor man. You never thought this guy's going to rise to be one of the, if not one of the, or the greatest killers in human history with roots of that sort. Remember, uh, Satan is a great counterfeiter. And he knows what human emotions are like. He knows uh, that he can play on our human emotions a lot. Beware. Beware lest our natural bias favoring underdogs overwhelms our better judgment. The truth is, we have a built-in bias against people with good backgrounds. And for people out of bad backgrounds. There's a bias in us, and, and, and I think that's natural and normal. But beware that we're aware of that. Otherwise, that natural emotion we have can easily be twisted by the evil one. Inauspicious roots. Then a huge ego. Our, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ said this, How do you know if someone has a huge ego? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Generally, our ego will be demonstrated by, through, our, through our mouth. Let's see what Daniel said. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Here's chapter 8. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. Here's chapter 11. It's going to also speak about the Antichrist. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. You probably know that's a, a, a sculpture of, of Nero. Well, there's some things about Nero you might not know. He, he, he fashioned himself as a great um, a musician. And he um, would have concerts, and he would expect people to come to his concerts. And, uh, and uh, they had to fill the stadium, and of course they had to applaud a lot. But in 67 AD, the Olympic Games... Um, were held, and, and he was uh, coerced, or people asked him to, um, 
to, to participate in the Olympic Games to try to improve the relationship between Greece and Rome. So he participated. And guess what? He won everything. He won every event that he was in. And guess what? Though Nero faltered in his racing, in one case, dropping out before the end of the race, he won nevertheless. And paraded his medals in all the way to Rome. How did he do it? He bribed the judges, and his status as emperor required all the others to say, let him win. He had a, a huge ego. I think sometimes we tend to overlook or not even notice the bravado and the blasphemy of leaders, maybe because we like what they stand for. Beware. There should be something inside of our spirits as Christians that is bothered when we hear leaders speak as if they are God's gift to humanity, or they can do God-like things, or they have superior knowledge. True humility is one of the most important characteristics you need to, as a church, look for in the next pastor of this body. And how will you know? Listen to the words. Third characteristic, Maleficent motivation. Maleficent, you know, there's a movie by that title now. Maleficent means causing or capable of causing harm or destruction, especially by supernatural means. The motivation of the Antichrist will be maleficent. Why does he do what he does? Look at it. It, that's the horn, grew up until it reached the host of heavens and it threw down some of the starry hosts to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of the rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. The Antichrist that Daniel envisions will be motivated by a thinly veiled hatred of God and everything he stands for. He's got a beef against God. Um, and so did this man. His name was Haman. This is a painting of Rembrandt by, about Haman. But Haman, as you know, goes back to the time of the Bible in Esther in the 400s B.C., and Haman, because Mordecai, the Jewish person, would not bow down to him, he took an, a rabid genocidal hatred against the Jewish people and decided to destroy them all. Now, there's a lot of background to the story that you might not know about. But he hated God's people. And he did everything in his power to, to destroy them. One of the things that deeply troubles me today, I, I, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that we live in a culture today that is increasingly sensitive to hate Hatred and hate crimes. I'm pleased about that. But I'm afraid that hate is inappropriately defined and it is not distributed across the board. I have a strong suspicion that hatred is ill-defined and some of those who most readily jump on the hate crimes bandwagon are themselves guilty of hatred. I suspect they probably hate those they accuse of hate crimes. May we do neither. May we as God's people define words carefully and apply them equally. So we don't hate people, anybody. We don't get to pick and choose. But one of the characteristics of the Antichrist, of Antichrist, is God's people 
And today that means Christians someday will become the objects of great hatred. And in parts of the world that's true right now. Well, their methodology will be devious. No surprise there. Here's what they will do. It says, and truth was thrown to the ground. He will cause deceit to prosper. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And we know from the Holy Scriptures that Satan is a master liar. Here's what Jesus said. You belong, he's speaking to the Pharisees, you belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So you can expect that the Antichrist will be a master of intrigue and manipulation, as was this man, who is Herod the Great. Oh, he buttered up the people with, with sports venues. He buttered up the people with building great, beautiful cities. He buttered up the people with even giving out money to the poor. He buttered up the wise men or tried to do so by telling them he wanted to worship the Christ child. But the man was a master of deceit and manipulation, something clearly to watch out for. And interestingly, he will be successful. And by the way, we live in a culture today in which we, always, we worship the successful. One of the warnings of God's word is be careful. Because one of the greatest characteristics of the Antichrist is he will be successful. How so? Here's what the Bible said. He prospered. It, it's talking about the horn, the one horn. It prospered in everything it did. And that's why, as you know, Adolf Hitler was so successful because after World War I, it, Germany was a mess. And in his rule, it prospered. And so people threw away their, their moral judgment because of quote-unquote success. He prospered and in the process threw truth to the ground. And it happens in churches too. He will become very strong but not by his own power. Something outside of himself empowers him. He will cause astounding devastation, and he will succeed in whatever he does, just like that cute baby. That's Adolf Hitler as a child. And I won't go into his story, but it's a stunning, it's a stunning story of, of, of a person who you thought, there's not a chance in the world this guy could be successful one of the most dominating leaders in the history of the world. By the way, it is time to elect a world leader, and your vote counts. Here are the facts about the candidates. Candidate number one, he associates with crooked politicians, he consults with astrologers, he's had two mistresses, he chain smokes and drinks eight to ten martinis a day. That's A. B. He was kicked out of office twice, sleeps till noon, uses opium in college, and drinks a quart of whiskey every evening. That's B. Here's C. He's a decorated war hero. He's a vegetarian. He doesn't smoke. He drinks an occasional beer and has had no extramarital affairs. That's C. Well, A, if you voted for A, that's Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And if you voted for B, 
that's Winston Churchill. And if you voted for C, that's Adolf Hitler. Be careful. Be careful. Last, the end. <laughs> then I heard one, a holy one, speaking. How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? He'll cause the seed to prosper, but in the end, he'll be destroyed, but not by human power. He will be destroyed. He'll be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. Just like this one is the one who this passage is really about. His name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. That's what he called himself. I am God manifest. And so you choose the inauspicious roots of the Antichrist versus the eternal roots of our Lord Jesus Christ. A huge ego or one who has true humility? One whose motivation is maleficent or one who gives his life as a sacrifice for all? One whose methodology is lies, deceit, intrigue, manipulation, flattery? Or one who is the very embodiment of truth? One whose success is sinister? Or one whose success is unstoppable? Or one whose end is bitter? Or the one who shall reign forever and ever? Those are our, our choices. And the world, interestingly, is going to go for the first one. But God's people decide with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. May we always and ever side with you, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we have eyes by your Holy Spirit to see you. May we have hearts strengthened to follow you. May we have the courage to stand with you. May we have the discernment to sift through the the smoke and mirrors of our culture. And maybe we reign with you forever and ever, all by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand with me. And as you leave this day, may God bless you and keep you and may his face shine upon you. May he fill you with his peace as you enter into this new year following Jesus. God bless you.